Come on, come on! Hurry up, you two! Let's get in the car! Why do you guys have to be so late all the time? Dad, do we have to listen to your CDs on the way? They're so... Careful, young lady! Mustn't let anybody see the real you, yeah. huh? Want me to tell Dad what I heard you say yesterday? He didn't hear me say anything. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Did too. Did not. Did too. Zip it, you did two. Not. I got enough on my mind. Get off. Stop Where it. is your mother? So, don't touch the front side. Scoot over here. Stop it. This is my go get your own. No, Knock it off. I hope you're happy, Harold. Everyone in this neighborhood is going to think you're nuts. Me. Stop touching me. You know what, Mom? Said that. Shut up, dork! Look, you two, just cut it out or I'm gonna come over the scene in a flash. We're out of here. Stop you always have to yell at me. So, I'm watching the camera. Get away from me. No, I was trying to get away from me. Get away from me. Get away from me. Get away Well, hopefully not many of you had that experience on your way to, way to church this morning. But you know, the reality is, for many of us, we're often guilty of wearing a mask, aren't we? Of pretending, at least to some extent, when we come to church. Seems so easy for us to fall into those habits of 
posing and posturing and trying to impress other people so often. I read a story this past week of a 12-year-old boy who was uh, waiting for his first dentist appointment. Before he went into the dental office, he had to fill out this questionnaire, and one of the questions on there was uh, simply, uh, what are your favorite hobbies? And so the little boy thought about it for a minute, and realizing that he was about to meet the dentist for the first time, uh, he thought about it for a second, and he simply put down uh, hobbies. Well, that would be football and flossing. So, uh, you know, it seems that even 12-year-olds maybe struggle a little bit with this whole uh, trying to impress people. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to impress your dentist or not, but I, I, I do know for many of us, if not all of us in this room this morning, uh, we're guilty at times of pretending, trying to make ourselves look better than we actually are, uh, to pretending to, to, to be something that we're really not. And the word for that, the word that sadly is so often associated with church and more pointedly toward individual believers, the word for that, pretending to be something that I'm really not, it's called hypocrisy. Now, interesting, this past week I googled the question, um, examples of hypocrisy in the church, and get this, this is just through Google Google search, um, 2,650,000 websites to choose from. Examples of hypocrisy in the church. Now, I don't know about you, but that that concerns me, to think that hypocrisy is seen as such a natural, normal part of the church. But in reality, it it is too often. And, you know, I I personally believe this has got to be one of the number one deciding factors for kids of Christian parents uh, in choosing to walk away from the faith. It just is. They see one thing at home, and then when we go to church, I see something totally different. Then we get back in the car to go home, and it's back to the same old person. Or, you know, I see her at church, but then I see her in the workplace, and bottom line, it just doesn't add up. Somebody's got to be faking something here. And if that pretending is... Christianity, then count me out. I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, Just raise your hand if you've ever heard that expression, I I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. You ever heard that before? Is that brand new? Yeah, the majority of you. Very popular phrase. Now, in all fairness, the person that says that, if they were consistent in that, they wouldn't go anywhere, right? Because, I mean, hypocrisy isn't just in the church, and if you're not going to go there because there's hypocrites there, uh, you, you best not go anywhere, you know, if you were really following that through consistently. But, you know, let's face it, the reality is uh, hypocrisy is a problem in the church. And the truth is, friends, that, that God hates it. God absolutely hates it. God hates it when we pretend to be something that we're really not. And I think part of that is because he knows how corrosive hypocrisy really is and the destruction that that can cause. That's why time and again in his word, he speaks to this issue. You know, I'm so glad that, that God's word um, isn't afraid of addressing the hard topics. I don't have to stand up here before you this morning and say, oh, I think we have a problem with hypocrisy, so we need to talk about that. No, I'm just preaching through God's Word. We're going back to the book of Acts this morning, and 
The book of Acts happens to be where we pick up the subject of hypocrisy. But, but even though I don't have the answers to all of that, I believe God's Word does have something to say this morning. So why don't you get hold of a Bible and uh, open to the book of Acts chapter 4. I encourage you to get that open before you. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can grab a pew Bible there and uh, turn to Acts chapter 4. Get into the New Testament. You go through the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you'll be there into Acts. And uh, we're going to begin at verse 32 here this morning. Now, uh, just to kind of set the context, some of you will remember we started into the book of Acts uh, back in the spring. And we went through kind of those first four chapters. But in case you've forgotten what I preached on six months ago, ago, uh, I'll just give you a little refresher here as to where we left off, all right? Here's what you need to know. The book of Acts is a historical record of the Acts of the early church. That's why it's called Acts. Uh, Nothing too complicated about that. This is the Acts of the early church. It's, It's a historical record. Some of the key events leading up to this point, the earthly work of Jesus has has come to a conclusion. Uh, He's gone back to heaven at this point. The Holy Spirit has been poured out there at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. He's empowered the church for the work of ministry. Peter and John have been out preaching. Uh, There's been people getting saved. The church is growing. Uh, There in Acts chapter 2, we get a model of what those early church services looked like. And we see some of that. But just prior to what we're going to look at here this morning, there's been a prayer meeting. In fact, there's been a bit of a shake-up actually, uh, uh, quite, a, quite a fired up prayer meeting, Acts 4.31, it says, after they prayed, these are the, the, the church gathered together there, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting uh, was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now remember, we're talking about a group of people here now, probably numbering upwards of 5,000 there in Jerusalem. I mean, this is a, this is a happening, uh, on-fire deal. Can you imagine being there and, and that place being shaken and the Holy Spirit poured out and, and, and there's, there's something happening in this place. And so Luke, the writer of Acts, begins here with uh, what I'm going to call this morning four marks of an authentic believer or an authentic church. Four marks of an authentic believer. Before we get to the hypocrisy part, uh, Luke shows us a little bit of what a, of what a real Christian looks like, uh, what an authentic Christian looks like. Notice four things uh, in this first section. Here's the first one, uh, marks of an authentic believer. Their heart's desire is toward unity. Their heart's desire is toward unity. Notice how it begins here, verse 32. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Now just think about that for a minute. All the believers. I just told you there was like 5,000 of them. This says all the believers. Not just some of them, all of them. Everybody say the word all. All. All the believers. All of them were one in heart and mind. Now think about that for a second. All of them were one in heart and mind. What's that mean? What, 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 what? is that? They're, they're, they're all one in heart and mind. What does that mean? Well, interesting because this is really Jesus' uh, first request for the church. You go back to John chapter 17. We have a whole chapter there of Jesus on earth praying to God the Father in heaven, and he begins to pray for those who will believe. He begins to pray for the church. And his first request, his first request for the church, get this, 
Here's what he says. He says, my prayer is that all of them may be one, Father, just as you're in me and I'm in you. May they be brought to complete unity. In other words, Father, help those people to be united in purpose. Help them to be on the same page. Just as you and I are one, God, help, help, help them to be one. Help them to get this. Not all these little groups each pull in their own way. Help them to be one. Not all pulling in different directions. You know, oh, I don't like what that person's doing, so I'm going to go and head in this direction. No, my heart's desire is toward unity. Been leading a, another couple through pre-marriage counsel over the last few weeks, and I love those times, really. I, I enjoy doing that. And, and one of the things that I just love talking about with a couple that's about to be married are the differences uh, between men and women. I mean, how we see things differently, and it's just the way we are. Uh, we're so different. You know, it's like men, we're, we're often, typically, I, I find men are all about work. You know, we're, we're, all, we're all about the work thing and, 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 and making money, and, and, and we just can't figure out why our wives are all, you know, worried about little Johnny's report card or, you know, what we're going to buy Aunt Martha for Christmas next year. You know, what does that matter? Um, you know, what I'm concerned about is how am I going to make the money to buy what we're going to buy for Aunt Martha next year for Christmas. But, see, the beauty of marriage is when we bring those two very different perspectives uh, together. And we begin to realize, you know what, without him, without her, I would be missing so much. If it was just my perspective, I, I, I'd only be getting half the picture. And that person adds so much more to my life. And because my heart's desire in marriage is toward unity, I, I care about what you care about. I'm going to show interest in little Johnny's report card because I, I, I want unity in this thing and I love you and I care about what you care about. So, so let's take hands and let's, and let's walk this journey together. Now, friends, you take that mentality and you transfer that to your relationships within the church. I'm telling you, people outside will stand up and take notice because it's such an attractive thing. It's one of the first marks of an authentic believer. Their heart's desire is toward unity. Notice, secondly, an authentic believer is generous with what they have. Generous with what they have. Verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. Now, just to be clear, uh, this isn't talking about communal living, all right? When it says here that they shared everything, that simply means that they shared everything. They still had their own possessions. There was still ownership. You'll see that in just a minute here. But the point here is in the claiming of those possessions. See, they didn't claim it as their own. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This early church got that verse. These aren't my things. This is God's things. I'm the caretaker of it. Now, that's, that's an incredibly freeing perspective uh, when we get there. It, it really is. If, if we could get around to that point of, you know, these aren't my things. They're really God's things. And there's incredible freedom in that. But friends, I'll be honest with you and, and, and candid with you. That's, uh, that's a whole lot easier said than done. It really is, truthfully. Remember a few years ago, 
when I was up on the farm, I bought a, a brand new Ford um, F-150, or F-250, Super Duty, uh, club cab, four-wheel drive, uh, cloth seats, beautiful interior, had a, I don't know, a six-thing CD player. I mean, it, it's running. It was a beautiful truck. I loved that truck. I loved that truck. It was brand new, and, uh, and, and I just loved it. But the problem was um, somebody called one day, and they said, uh, Jim, I know that you have a truck. and just wondering if I can borrow it. And um, let me just say that the generous with what I have uh, wasn't the first thing that came into my mind. And I've often said since, you know what, I- I'm never going to buy a brand new vehicle again. I'm just not. I'm just flat out, I, I, just, I-, I don't want a new vehicle again. I'm just not going to buy a brand new vehicle again. We had older trucks, and, and any time somebody called to borrow one of those, it was never a problem. It was never an issue. You know, I just hope it doesn't break down on you when you're on your way. But, but I'm just not going to do that. I, I don't want to be in that position anymore. But see, my point is, as an authentic believer, God calls us to be generous with what we have. And probably for you, it's not a truck, but maybe it's your time. Generous with my time. Generous with my abilities. You, you put whatever it is, regardless of what it is, uh, so important to ask ourselves occasionally, am I, am I generous? Am I generous with what I have? It's a, it's a mark of an authentic believer. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything. Notice this third thing, this third mark. They were bold and courageous in their witness. Verse 33, it goes on here, it says, With great power, uh, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Now, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail there. There's a lot there, but only to point out there's a connection between us doing our part and God doing His part. See, even though they were getting beat up and people were laughing at them, laughing in their faces, and some days weren't easy, for these early believers to be known as followers of Jesus. Still, they they kept at it. They did what they knew was right. And it says here, because of that, much grace was upon them all. In other words, they had God's unmerited favor. Now, I don't know about you, but I want that in my life. I so need God's grace in my life. And friends, listen, that grace flows to anyone who is willing to take off the mask and willing to say, no more pretending, God, I just need you. I want to be real before you. I want to get real with you, God. Always, 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 God's grace flows to that place, that place of authenticity. See, I believe with all my heart that God's a whole lot more concerned about my honesty than he is about my perfection. He wants us to be real a whole lot more than He wants us to be perfect. Yes, He wants holiness. Yes, He wants us growing in that. But His desire is for authenticity. God's looking for people that are willing to be real before Him. Whose heart's desire is toward unity. People that are generous with what they have. People who are willing to take a chance to be bold and courageous in their witness. Notice this fourth thing. Marks of authentic Christianity. These believers cared about meeting the practical needs of other people. 
In fact, just notice what it says here. This is incredible, really, when you think about it. Verse 34, it says, There were no needy persons among them. Imagine that. No needy persons. Think about that. How can that be? This is a group of over 5,000 people in this church, and everybody's needs are being met. Why was that? Well, bottom line, it's because authentic Christianity causes me to be concerned about the needs of other people, meeting practical needs. You say, how did they do that? How, How did this work? Well, Luke's about to tell us right here. Notice it goes on. Verse 34, there was no needy persons among them because from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, in order to really get this, I want you to notice two things here. First of all, that phrase, from time to time. In other words, it wasn't like, oh, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ now, I guess I better go and sell the farm and bring all the money and, you know, give it to the church. No, they simply did this from time to time. They did it from time to time. Somebody had a need, somebody had a property, and they were able to meet that need, and so they would go ahead and and, and they would do that. The other thing you need to notice here is that word brought. Notice it doesn't say they were forced to bring the money. It doesn't say they were required to bring the money. It doesn't even say here that they had to bring all the money. No, it simply says they brought it. It was totally of their own free will. Now, in order to understand what comes next, you have to get that. This was voluntary giving out of a heart that wants to meet a need and the ability to meet a need, and so I follow through. It was voluntary. God's blessed me with this property. Makes financial sense right now to sell it. I see there's a need over there. I believe God's calling me to meet that need. I have an opportunity here. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to bring the money and I'm going to meet that need. That's the context. I choose, I choose to do this because I'm authentic, because my faith is real. That's the context. Now, illustration time. All in favor of a story, just nod your head if you're in favor of an example right about now. Would that be okay? that all right? We'll give an example. Glad you're all in favor of that because Luke's about to give us two of them right here. Here's exhibit A, a man by the name of Joseph. If you're looking for a heading here, you can just call this section the real deal. The real deal. This is the real deal. Here it is, verse 36. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, Joseph sold a field he owned, and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. Friends, you know what that is? That's the real deal right there, all right? That's it. That's authentic Christianity in action. Those four marks that we just talked about, this is it on the playing field. This is what it looks like. I have a desire for unity. I want to be generous with what God's given me. I want to be bold in my witness, and I care about the practical needs of others. That's it. That's bottom line. That's my motivation. And so I choose to sell this field and I choose to bring the money and give it to the church. Friends, listen, that's what the real deal looks like. That's it. But just like always, where God's at work, Satan is also at work. And if he can find a way to get his dirty, stinky foot into the church, trust me, he'll do it every time. If there's an opportunity to get it in there, he'll do it. He loves to destroy. He loves 
corrosive-natured things. And that's what he does here. I believe as much as God hates hypocrisy, Satan loves it. And he just loves to use that tool in the church. He, he just smiles from ear to ear when he hears those kinds of phrases. And here in Acts 5, sadly, we read about the first recorded instance of, of, of sin inside the church. This is the first time, it's been, first time it's come to the inside of the building. Do you know that? It's not just a problem out there. Sin often makes its way in here. Sins inside the church is the first time we read about it inside the body of believers. I just call it the pretend deal. Barnabas was the real deal. Here's the pretend deal. Acts 5.1, it begins like this. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Huh, wonder where they got that idea from. Maybe they've been watching when Barnabas did that. I'm sure. So they decide to sell a piece of property, and with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Now let me just ask you straight up, in light of what we've just talked about, has Ananias done anything wrong here? Is there any sin involved here in what Ananias is doing? No, clearly not, right? I mean, he could do whatever he wanted with that money. He, he, he could have called the travel agent. They could have booked a second honeymoon. I mean, the, he, it was at his disposal. He could do whatever he wanted to do. You see, you, you need to get that. The money isn't the issue in this story, all right? It's not about the money. It's not about bringing half of the money. But there he is. There's Ananias. He's brought this big bag of, mo- bag of money and he plops it on the ground there in front of Peter. Interesting to me in the story, he's obviously standing there still waiting. We don't read of him walking out. He brings the money, he plops it down, and he appears to stand there waiting for something. My guess is he's wanting to make sure that everybody knows who brought that big bag of money. I mean, he forgot to write his name on it, so he wants to make sure that people recognize that this is from him. I don't know for sure, but he's, he, he's waiting. He's waiting for something. And then, and then Peter asks him a haunting question, really. Verse 3, it says, Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You, you haven't lied to men, but to God. Friends, that's hypocrisy in a nutshell right there. You have not lied to men, but to God. In other words, I'm pretending to be something that I'm not. I want you to think well of me. I want you to think that I brought it all in. I, I, I want to impress you. I want you to think of me like you thought of Barnabas, that I'm a good Christian. I want you to know that. 
But ah, if you only knew the truth. And in light of the Holy Spirit, Ananias is caught pretending. He's caught faking it. It says in verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then the young men came forward and they wrapped up his body and they carried it out and buried him. Wow. Imagine that scene. Imagine you're sitting there with your husband or your wife and this is the first week in town and you choose to go to this church. The guy's brought in a big bag of money and he falls over dead. I mean, not exactly your seeker-sensitive service. But now they've carried him out. It's what they did back then, by the way. When somebody died, they took them immediately and they would seal the body in a tomb. They didn't dig a hole in the ground. They'd seal it in a tomb and wait for the body to decompose and then they'd do something with the bones. Just how they did it. Then it says, verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Now, I have no idea where she was for the last three hours, but simply she didn't know what happened. Who knows where she got tied up? I don't know, but... Three hours later, here she comes, and Peter says to her, uh, Tell me, tell me, Sapphira, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. You can just write the word pretend right there. She's a pretender. She's a faker. Verse 9, Peter says to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord. How how could you do this? Look, the feet of the man who buried your husband, they're at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet, and she died. And then the young men come in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And it says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Wow, can you imagine? What a Sunday morning service that must have been. You think about it. I read that story and I have to say it seems to beg the question to me, why on earth would a loving God do something like that? I mean, is that really fair? Is it really that big of a deal what they did? And I'll be honest, I'm not sure I have the answer to all those questions this morning. Oftentimes, God does stuff that I just don't understand. He just does. But I do know this, that God takes hypocrisy within His church very seriously. You see, the root issue here between Ananias and Sapphira was that they were hypocrites. They were pretending to be something that they really weren't. They wanted to look good. They wanted the apostles to think well of them. They wanted people to stand up and think, notice, wow, they must be really good Christians to sell that valuable piece of property. I'm sure it brought millions. And to bring all of that and give it to the church, that's unbelievable. Wow, they must be incredible believers. Their faith, that's that's incredible. And so God in His sovereignty chose to deal with them in a very specific way here in the early stages of the church, I think that plays into this story 
incredibly. This was the beginning of the church. God wanted to make a statement. We see later on people caught with, in hypocrisy, even Peter himself, you know, sitting there with his Gentile friends. Here comes the Jews. He dumps the Gentiles, goes, goes with the Jews. That's, that's flat-out hypocrisy. God didn't take him out. But I think here in the beginning stages of that early church, God wanted to make a point. He wanted to be clear. We can't tolerate hypocrisy in the church. You need to know that. And so it says fear sees the church. They got the lesson. Someone has said if God still dealt with hypocrites in the church today as he dealt with this, with this couple, our churches would be morgues rather than churches. I think there's a lot of truth to that statement. So clearly God is a God of mercy and grace and He's long-suffering and He's patient toward us and He doesn't always respond quite this way. But you know, Scripture is also clear that we're called to times of self-examination. And so I want to close that way this morning. Uh, But before I do, I I want to offer offer you some, some practical help when it comes to dealing with this issue of hypocrisy, and as I thought about this last week, I kind of come up with five things here that I, that I think helps with this issue of, at least it helps in my life, and I, I hope it'll help you. I encourage you to take note of these five things. How do I battle hypocrisy in my life? Uh, first of all, I need to recognize how much God hates it. I really do. I, I need to recognize how much God hates it. He's serious about hypocrisy. That's what this text says to me. God's not fooling around. And so I can't fool around with it either. He, he, he takes it seriously. Number two, I need to have a daily reality check before God. A daily reality check before God. Sometime in the day, I don't care when it is, but just a time alone with God to say, God, I want to be real before you in this moment. Show me those areas of my life where I'm faking it. I want to be real, God. Daily, daily reality check. Number three, I need to be connected with a small group or an accountability partner, better yet. Somebody that I can be totally honest with. That's why I'm so much for small groups and getting together in smaller groups. Because you just can't do that here on a Sunday morning. It isn't appropriate for us to pour out our sins and pour out our hearts in front of the whole church. We do that gathered in small groups, better yet. Get somebody that you can trust with your deepest, darkest secret, make sure it's a a mutual deal and get connected with that person. It'll help you with hypocrisy. You can point it out in one another's lives. Number four, I need to keep eternity in view. This one's huge for me. I, I think it's so important to realize that all of us are one heartbeat away from a divine appointment. You don't know. I don't know. You could be gone like that. And I'm standing before God. And I'm telling you, in that moment, I don't want junk between him and I. I just don't. I think we need to live with eternity in view. We need to keep current. We need to keep up to date before God. Lastly, number five, I think we need to Uh, cultivate an atmosphere of honesty and grace within the church. I think we tend to do the opposite of that in many ways. It seems to me that often the way that 
we are at church and the way that we model church to new believers uh, pushes the opposite of this. You know, new people come into the church and we all look, you all look so good. You all have it together. I think it's high time that we be done with judgmental attitudes in the body of Christ. Judging one another. I'm better than that person at least. We need to be done with that. Truth is, we're all little messes. Truth is, we're all little messes. We all have our issues. If you're here this morning and you somehow think that you've got it all together, then loved one, you need to get on your knees and you need to say, God, show me who I really am. I haven't found anybody yet that doesn't have some issue, some challenge, some struggle, some area of pretend in their lives. I haven't met anyone yet. Time to stop pretending and get real before God. So I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. And we're going to close a little different here today, but I just want you to bow your heads. And I'm just going to ask you a few questions. I just encourage you to think through some of these questions just for a moment. Come right out of the text. Ask God to show me, show me if I'm faking it in this area. Show me where I'm pretending, God. Question number one, is my heart's desire really, fully, totally toward unity? In my conversations this past week, was I working toward unity in those? As I had the opportunity, was I trying to build a sense of oneness within the church? As I talked to people around the community, as I talked to my family, as we talked on our way home from church? Friends, absolutely devastating what happens to children when their parents badmouth the church on their way home from church. Is my heart's desire really toward unity? You need to answer that. Number two, am I generous with what God has given me? Do I see it as His, my stuff? Am I generous with what God has given me? Or do I ever give to be noticed? Number three, am I bold and courageous in my witness? Or am I just posing for people? I'm great around other Christians, but not so great in the workplace. Do my words and my actions match up? Really, do my words and my actions match up? Do what people think about about me on Sunday morning, is that what the people that I work with, would they say the same thing? Do my words and my actions match up? Number four, do I really care about meeting the practical needs of other people? Am I doing something about that? And then finally this, is there any area of my life where I'm just pretending? Where I'd rather just close the door and pretend that I'm hiding that from God. I'd hate for anyone to really know about that area of my life. Do I have some of those? 
Heavenly Father, you are a God of grace and mercy. And you're patient with us. And we bow before you this morning and say that we struggle with this issue of hypocrisy. And we want so much for that to change. That's an area of our lives that we want you to be at work in. And Lord, it would be my prayer this morning that six, six months from now, I would see growth in regard to hypocrisy in my life. That I would be more serious about getting rid of it. Lord, I need your help with that. I, I, I want to be real, but it's such a scary thing to do. Lord Jesus, would you begin to root out the hypocrisy within your church that I believe saddens your heart. And help us to begin to take off the mask and help us to begin to get real with you. Help us to begin to do some of these things that that we've suggested here this morning, that God, we would have those times where we just come before you and say, Lord, I'm ready now. Show me the real me. We'd be willing to address those issues. God, help us to be current before you. We have no idea a group this size, we don't know. Lord, help us to be current, to be up to date in our attitudes and our actions before you. Thank you that you promised to help us in that. We don't have to do this on our own. We, we can't in many ways. And we call on you, Holy Spirit, to be at work in our lives this week. Help us to remember the truth of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, that's it this morning. You're dismissed. I just challenge you to think through some of that in the coming week and say, God, what do you want to change in my life? God bless you. You are dismissed.